Hey, we're Phil and Meredith, and we're the pastors here at Cornerstone Church, and we are so glad that you are here with us today. It's our prayer that this message is an inspiration to you, that it builds you up, that it stirs your faith right now in your today, as well as in the days to come. We believe that God has great things for you. God bless you. Feeling good? Yeah, I'm feeling good today. I've been kind of trying to figure out how I feel actually because normally right after heaven on earth, I feel physically exhausted. But I don't really feel physically exhausted this year because we didn't have all the kind of other side of things, right? We didn't have all the guests coming in town and all the people coming in town and so I'm a little bit conflicted because I feel really happy that I don't feel physically exhausted right now. Come on, yes. I also feel a little bit bummed that I didn't get to hang out with like all of our network pastors who normally come and be in this room with all of, you know, the energy of all of us in here. And, and so I have this like kind of bizarre space where I'm like, man, wasn't it cool how we did this incredible online experience and, and how we got to hear from so many more of our network leaders and we got to have that great opening number with um, members from like what, like four or five of our different network churches leading worship all together and we had Todd Galberth and our team singing together in two and I was like this is awesome but then at the same time I was like I really miss being in the building all together and like you know being up super late and hanging out and so I was trying to figure out how like when we're past this how can we kind of like blend these two options together how do I get the best of everything because I'm kind of a both and kind of person and I don't really like to um, like just get kind of what's good. I want to get like the best of all of the stuff. So I want you to know I'm working on some ideas to get the best of both of all of the stuff. When we kind of get on the other side of this, I want a blended option for that. Whose kids are in school right now? Let us know if you're in the chat. If you have kids in school or like if you're a teacher. My goodness, what a bizarre year we're having, right? And when I was thinking about like blended options for schools, I was talking to a friend who's a teacher and they, uh, their school where she teaches is getting ready to welcome students back in, but they're also trying to find the best of all of the options. And so they've gone with the hybrid option for their school, which means that some days, some of the kids are in the building and some days, those same kids are at home and another group of kids is in the building and another group of kids is at home. You guys know what this is, you've been hearing about it. Because what they're trying to figure out how to do is how do we get the best of keeping the kids kind of separate so we have enough space and so that we're using our online option and how do we get the best of bringing them into the building so they still have contact and so they're still getting face-to-face -face teaching and they're trying to blend those two things together. And sometimes I want you to know if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a student, if in any way really you are affected by education at this moment in your life, that you are on my daily prayer list because it is such a complicated time, isn't it, to be engaging in our education system and trying to figure out what to do. But sometimes the most complicated option gives us the best results, right? It would be easy for us for conference to say, we're only going to do something in person and we're just going to be in the room and we're going to get the best of what in the room offers us, but we're going to totally ignore the other thing in an online audience. 
And then it's kind of easy for us to say, we're just gonna totally be online and we're just gonna do all of that and we're not gonna think about being in the room and we're not gonna worry about what we lose and not being in that, we're just gonna focus here. And the same thing is true with the students. If they just focus all on one thing or all on the other way, it might be a little bit easier, but when we're trying to maximize results, often the best option is found in the complicated space of the hybrid, of blending those two things together. We're starting a new series today that we're titling Hybrid, because I believe our faith is walked out in the best space when we don't live a life of either or, but we live a space that says we're gonna grapple with the complicated space of blending two things together. We're gonna live in the difficult tension space because how many know that often when you blend the best things together, that's where you get the maximum result. A hybrid option is taking two things that seem opposing, that seem different, that are different from each other, that are opposite in a lot of ways, that are different than in their original forms, and then you find a way to blend them together to get something new, to get something different, to get the maximum option. A few years ago, my brother and I were in a grocery store together, and we were um, walking through the produce section, and we came across something called a grapple. Has anyone ever had a grapple before? No, because it's very uncommon. Because guess what it is? They took a grape and an apple, and they blended them together to create this new hybrid fruit called a grapple, which looks and feels like an apple, but tastes just like a grape. And I promise you it does, because my brother and I were not going to leave that wonderful mystery of science and culinary combination there on the shelf. We had to bring it home to taste it ourselves. And when you bit into it, it crunched and crisped like an apple, and it tasted like a grape. It was amazing. Some people might say it was the better option. That depends on, I suppose, what you like. But it blended together fantastically. Come on, we know this in all kinds of ways that when we blend things together, we get the best options when we create new things out of old opposing things. Hybrid cars, when I said hybrid, a lot of you thought of a car. Hybrid cars take the best of what it is to be a gasoline-powered car, an electric-powered car, and they blend these options together to give us an improved result. And in the same way, too much of the same thing gives us negative results. We know that if we have too much of the same in our diet, we don't have what we need. If you're into like dogs and into pets, you know that purebred dogs have a lot more uh, physical ailments, have a lot more issues because there's too much of the same in their DNA, there's too much of the same in their makeup. I recently learned a fun fact, which is that when my grandparents got married, they had to go take a blood test. Who knows why they had to take a blood test? To make sure they weren't related, to make, I was like, what? Apparently there weren't enough people back then and they wanted to make sure. <laughs> That's a joke. 
but they wanted to make sure that there wasn't too much of the same in their blood, in their DNA before these two people got together because we are strengthened not in our sameness but in our difference. The best parts of who we, who we are come out not when we keep feeding ourselves on the same thing but when we diversify what we're taking in, when we diversify and we strengthen what we're putting together too much of the same thing is not good for you and we have to learn how to step into spaces that require us to live in the tension of opposing things that require us to take in new information if you feed your body too much sugar over and over again your body will start craving sugar and then all it wants is more and more sugar your news feed works the same way the more you like on your newsfeed, the more you get of what you already liked on your newsfeed, and then you are consuming the same thing over and over again. And family, the same thing over and over again does not create a good reality for you. It does not build a good belief system for you. It does not build a good ideology in you when only what you are seeing is the same material that you have already liked, and then your feed keeps serving up to you more of what it knows you already like so that you will eat it and consume it quickly and it's why you live here in your world and you say how can anyone possibly think a b or c when everything i'm reading tells me x y and z and people over here in abc land are only eating out of abc news feeds and don't know why you would possibly believe x y z we have to learn how to fight the feed in our lives and intentionally go after things that tell us something new and something different because the truth is found in the tension of where we live and exist. Ecclesiastes says it this way. Ecclesiastes 7 and 18 says, it is good to grasp the one and to not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid extremes. I love the way the message version breaks it down. And today's message isn't about our voting or our politics, but it's a good scripture for you to write down and keep in mind over the coming weeks. Ecclesiastes 7 and 18 in the message version says, it's best to stay in touch with both sides of an issue. A person who fears God deals responsibly with all of reality, not just a piece of it. What we feed ourselves, it matters. What we put into our lives, it matters. God, we come before you today and we ask you to change us through your word. I ask you to speak through me what I have heard in your presence, God. Give us hearts that are open before you, that are good soil. And I ask your word to go deep in our lives and to make fruit in the days ahead. God, what's you, let it come forth, let it burst, let it make fruitful lives that reflect who you are, and what's me, let it all be left here, let it all be forgotten. We thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. For today, we're gonna be talking about some food. 
Let's talk about food in relationship to our hybrid life and to our hybrid faith. There is a concept of fasting and there is a concept of feasting in our faith and we are unhealthy if we live in the extremes of either of those two things. We wanna talk about the kingdom culture, not of extremes, but of hybrid, of living in the tension of how do I do and walk out both of these things. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 4. Matthew 4 and 1 is what might be a familiar passage of scripture to you. This is right after Jesus has been baptized. He has come up from the water. He has been acknowledged and affirmed by the Father God. And then it says, and then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I love little things that the Bible puts in there. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Don't you sometimes wanna go, no kidding, right? After fasting for like 40 minutes, I'm hungry. The man fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights and he was hungry. But what it tells me is that the scripture wants to be clear that when he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, it was an actual physical fast. It wants to be sure that you're not confused that he was potentially fasting metaphorically, but literally he was abstaining from food for 40 days and for 40 nights. And I think that if fasting was important enough that God who became man had to engage in the spiritual discipline of fasting, it's something that we should be paying attention to in our walk as well. That fasting is meant to be part of our regular practice. Fasting is meant to be part of what we do on a habitual basis as believers, engaging in fasting, in separating ourselves from food for a little while to say, God, there's something that I wanna come before you with. There's something that I wanna hear. I wanna dedicate my life in a new way. God, I wanna make a physical example of my life in a way that represents the spiritual change, the spiritual engagement that's happening right here and right now in my life. And all throughout scripture, we see references to fasting. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, it's clear that fasting was a part of the habit of the believers of God, that fasting was a part of their regular spiritual discipline and of practice. And what's really apparent is that while we see moments of corporate fasting, when they come together as a group of believers, maybe like in Esther, when she calls all of the people to fast with her for three days, and that they gather together as a group in an event and a time of corporate fasting, what we see far more of is individual fasting, is of people saying, I'm taking a moment to fast. And I want us to think today, when was the last time that you called yourself to a fast? When was the last time in your personal devotion before God you said, I'm going to fast? I think in the, in the American church, we have a bit, at least in churches like our style, a bit of a habit of corporate fasting where we show up and we do good saying, God, we wanna put some mile markers in our year of regular fasting. But we also need some believers who know how to say, I heard from God and 
I need a time of fasting in my own life because I've learned in my life that my devotion before God is about more than just what happens in the group setting. That there's something powerful about the group, but there's something powerful about a group of believers who are powerful individually. And we need believers. You need people around you who can stand up and say, I know how to fast. I know how to fast in my own space. Earlier this year, we were um, preparing, I think it was an email that we were sending out to the congregation, and I was reading through it and proofing that email, and somewhere in it, it had a line that said, we'd be, said we've been praying and fasting for you and believing for these, these things, something like that, and I was reading it, and so I said to the person who, I was, you know, uh, who had written it, I said, um, have we been fasting? Because I haven't been fasting. I've been having a baby, and so I have not been fasting. They generally inform you not to fast when you are pregnant. And I want to make sure that whatever we're sending out is true and is accurate, that, that we are not telling people that we're fasting and believing for them, and we're not fasting and, be, and believing for them. And without missing a beat, this person been fasting. I've been fasting and waiting. And I was like, well, come on then. Let the people know that their team is fasting for them, that someone is interceding for them. You need some people in your life that don't have to be called to fasting from the platform, but say, you know what, we're at a critical moment right now, and if we're at a critical moment right now, then I'm gonna call myself to a fast. I'm gonna put some disciplines in my life all by myself. Not because someone encouraged me to, but because I hear from God. And we see this rhythm of fasting in Scripture. Uh, a lot of the fasting that we see throughout Scripture can kind of be grouped into maybe three different categories, three different types of ways that people are engaging in their fasting. The first is a request. When they have a request before God, people turn towards fasting. It's the kind of fasting that I referenced that Esther did when she said, God, I need you to move on my behalf right now. And so I'm gonna call the people to fasting. It's probably what we're most familiar with in our Western culture is a fast where we say, God, we're going to refrain from eating and we're gonna ask you to step in and to intervene in this place. It's because we live in a very transactional society in Western culture, so sometimes we bring that culture into our faith that we connect most quickly with a request form of fasting, even though it's actually the form we see least frequently in Scripture. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that it's not valid. It means that sometimes we get stuck with what is easiest for us, with what's most familiar to us, that there are times when we would come before God and say, I am fasting so that you would move here. David did it in Psalms 35 and 13. He said, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth and I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed down on my chest. He said, because of the sickness that I saw, I moved to fasting to contend with you, God, that you would move on their behalf. There's another form of fasting that we see, and this is a for a form of return. 
when we are returning to something in God, when we all of a sudden have a realization that we have been removed from God, that we've been separated from God, that we've stepped outside, we see this returning to God through fasting all throughout scripture. It's actually one of the most common forms is when someone says, oh my gosh, I have realized how separated I've become, how I stepped out of this space with you, God, and because of my realization of this, I'm gonna move into a season of fasting. It's what Joel says in Joel 2 and 12. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We've heard that last part before. If you remember, it's the part from Exodus that we said is God's description of himself. It's who God is. And that when we return to him, that sometimes when we fast, there's something that's so grievous that we encounter that, that our response is that I'm going to abstain from food. And the thing about it is it says I need to sit here for a minute. I don't want to rush past this realization that I've just had. I don't want to rush past the pain that I just encountered. I don't want to rush past the moment of mourning that I just encountered. Sometimes we have a tendency to want to say, oh my gosh, I realized something tragic. Let me run in the other direction and pretend that that never happened. But somehow in scripture, there's this pattern of using fasting, of using mourning to come and say, God, this is a painful moment. And before I run from it, I want to invite you into it with the spiritual practice of fasting. I want to connect with this moment because when we preach a gospel that is only our joyous moments, that is only our mountaintop moments, we neglect, we land ourselves in an extreme and neglect the fact that he is also the God who comes to us when we are mourning, that he is also the God who comforts the brokenhearted and draws near to them and will sit with you in your pain for a moment until it's healed and now we can walk and move away from it. And so there's fasting for return that says, I'm returning my heart to God. And then there's fasting that is a moment of recognition, a moment that says, God has been so good. God is so great. He's so awesome. He's so massive. He's so powerful and far beyond. I don't even know what to do and I don't know where to put it and I don't know how to respond. And so in a holy act before him, I'm going to abstain from food so that my spirit can be more like him, so that my spirit can connect with him in a deeper way. There are three instances of 40-day fast throughout scripture. We just read about one, it was Jesus. The first one that we see is Moses. And Moses is responding to being in the very presence of God and it's so consuming to him that all he knows to do is consume the presence of God instead of consuming food. 
And then we see Elijah when God shows up on the mountain and he's fire from heaven and he embarrasses all of Baal and his priest. And Elijah, in response to what God does, pulls away into a time of fasting. And Jesus, when God shows up and says, this is my beloved son, is then sent into the desert as a time of recognition to celebrate that God or to recognize that God is great, mighty, awesome, the God who just spoke from heaven. And he responds to God's goodness with recognition through fasting. But by the time we get to Matthew 14, we find Jesus in a very different wilderness moment. We find Jesus walking again into the wilderness. Matthew 14 and 13 says, now when Jesus heard this, what Jesus has just heard is that John the Baptist, his friend and his cousin, has been beheaded, and he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns out into this desolate wilderness place. I wonder how much Jesus was wanting to get away for a while. How much Jesus was hoping to disconnect from the crowds, to isolate himself and to allow himself to mourn what just happened. But by this time, there were people who, who had heard who Jesus was, who had heard of his miracle working power. There were people who were starting to get an understanding of just what kind of God this is that is walking around with flesh on and starting to hint at this might be the Messiah that we've been waiting on and so the crowds weren't willing to leave him it says they followed him into the wilderness now I want you to get a picture for what this wilderness is because if you're here in Midwest Ohio I don't know where you're connecting from you might have a picture of like a forest and trees that he's out hunting in the wilderness but when scripture refers to the wilderness it's not referring to hunting out in the forest and the trees it's referring to the outskirts of town it's referring to the parts of town that were unde undeveloped, to the parts of town where nobody went, the outskirts, out there where there's no infrastructure, out there where nobody else really likes to go to, out there where there's not really any systems in place or any community in place, where there aren't a lot of people gathering around. And it says that as Jesus tried to isolate himself in this wilderness Space, that there was a crowd that followed him there. And I just wonder if there's a crowd of people, if there's a body of believers who are willing to follow Jesus into the unknown space of the wilderness today. If there are people who are willing to walk with him into the desolate places, into the places where there aren't any people yet, into the places where there aren't any community yet, into the places where no one's developed, if there are people willing to walk with him to those places because they've seen who Jesus is. And when we follow Jesus into that wilderness place, it says his heart was moved with compassion. And he began to work miracles in that place. And while the last time that we saw Jesus 
in a desert space, he was fasting and refraining from food. It says that his heart was moved with compassion as he was in this desert, desolate place, and the crowd was there, and he performed miracles. And you've probably read this portion of scripture before because he began to teach to them. And he began to heal them, and he began to open eyes, and he began to reveal to them just who he was. And it says that he did it until late in the evening. And when it was late in the evening, his disciples came to him, and they said, the people are hungry. We should send them away. And Jesus said, don't send them away. Go get them some food. You go find something for them to eat. And so the disciples went to try and figure out how they were possibly going to do this unknown, outrageous request that Jesus asked of them. And when they went to try and find it, they found a boy who had a little lunch. It says two, two loaves and fish. And they brought those back to Jesus. And when they brought it back to Jesus, who wanted to be in isolation but found himself in the midst of a crowd I hope you're here next week because we're going to talk about how the gathering and the isolation are both parts of our hybrid faith. They brought him the fish. They brought him the bread, and Jesus took it into his hands, and he broke it, and he blessed it because in the hands of Jesus, we have to both be broken and blessed before he can send us out. And he broke it, and he blessed it, and then in the midst of the wilderness, Jesus served up a feast to those people. It says that he spread that loaves and that fish and he fed 5,000 plus with it. 5,000 men plus women and children were fed in a feast in the midst of a wilderness place because Jesus is the God who, yes, we respond with fasting, but yes, we also respond with feasting. And he can create a feasting moment right in the middle of your desert place. He can create a feasting moment right in the midst of your wilderness place, right in the space where you think, I've gone too far away from all of the resources are. Jesus says, as long as you're still with me, there's an opportunity for a feast right here in the middle of the desert. And he spread it out as a celebration among the people of who he was. Matthew 14 and 20 says, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. He did not serve them just enough to get them home. He did not serve them a snack to tide them over. He served them a feast. He served them so much that they ate until they were satisfied and they had baskets left over. He fed them a feast in the midst of the wilderness. And I have to wonder what it is Jesus did with those loaves and those fish to make 5,000 plus people satisfied. Phil and I have this kind of ongoing tension point in our marriage around food. It's just one of those areas we haven't all the way worked out yet, right? I don't want you to be nervous. Everything's fine and we're good. But, you know, you just have those things that like every so many months, it seems like we kind of keep coming back to this thing where we're like, we don't really see this eye to eye yet. And I don't want you to be nervous, but I do want you to know if you've only recently been married that if you don't have everything sorted out by December, it's going to be okay. 
Sometimes there are just some things that keep coming back up until you get it all the way sorted out. The main contention point with our food situation is that my main priorities in meal making are that it is fast and healthy. Phil's main priority in the meal prepping situation is deliciousness. You can see our conflict. Fast and healthy and deliciousness do not often coincide to create a great option. If you have fast and healthy and delicious, we're in the market for fast and healthy and deliciousness. But I wonder what Jesus did to serve up. This is just my imagination part of it. When I try and put myself in the story and I think he's a miracle working God and it says that 5,000 plus people were satisfied. Do you think as they got their loaves and their fish that everyone's fish was done a little bit just how they like it? Like somebody's fish over here was fried up and somebody's was cajun and this person over here had a grilled blackened lemon pepper. I don't know. This, it's not in the scripture at all. This is what's in my imagination because it says that they were satisfied. And satisfied has to do with the amount that they ate, but it also means that they enjoyed the meal that Jesus was serving them, that he served them up something good, that tasted delicious. Come on, let's not get too in the spiritual. Let's not get too in the separating our physical from our spiritual life. When we feast before God, we should enjoy the meal that we are taking in. He says that he wants you to taste the food and enjoy what he is serving up for us. I think that we've a little bit lost the art of a holy feast before him. I want you to start taking note as you read in your scripture and devotion how often the people of God are eating, physically eating, enjoying food together, feasting together. There are things that come together to create a holy feast in his presence and we don't experience the fullness of who God wants us to be if we are only fasting and we are neglecting to feast as well. We feast together when there are people at the meal. Now this might sound ridiculous, but eating a lot by yourself is not a feast. It's just overindulging and a little bit sad. Feasting involves other people. It involves gathering some people together. It says that Jesus had a crowd, and not only did he have a crowd, but then he instructed them to sit down into some groups together, and he said, this is what a feast looks like when you have gathered together in a group of people. There's a blessing involved in a feast. A blessing invites God into that moment. It's not just eating food. It's eating food with a God awareness, with a God centeredness that says, God, we are grateful for what you have given us. God, you have been so good to us. God, be in the center of our meal, in the center of this moment. Let our conversation be around who you are. Let our conversation circle around what it means to be your people. There is a God-centeredness to a feast. There is fun and enjoyment in a feast. 
While, while fasting has a somberness to it, a seriousness to it, a discipline of devotion to it, feasting in God's presence is about the party. It's about the celebration. Come on, being in the presence of God is a happy place to be. It's an enjoyable place to be. It is not on accident with our very intentional God that the very first miracle he performed was where? At a feast at a party, at a wedding banquet, because he said, I am the God of your fasting. Yes, I'm also the God of your feasting. Right in the middle of your celebration, I want you to remember who I am. And there is abundance in feasting, which doesn't mean overindulging, which doesn't mean over the top. It means that when we are in his presence, we acknowledge that there is more than enough. We acknowledge that there is plenty to go around. We acknowledge that there is something that happens when we celebrate the greatness and goodness of who God is and that there is an abundance of spirit and an abundance of nourishment when we come together to feast. I think that we tend to know that fasting is part of our spiritual habit, that it should be part of the rhythm of our year and our connection with God, but I think that we have lost the art of holy feasting before him. We've lost the art of saying we are intentionally coming to sit around a table and enjoy a meal together to celebrate who God is. Because we get a little bit legalistic. We think that the things of God have to be serious. We think that the things of God have to be somber, have to be quiet, have to be rigid. That that is where the Holy Heavenly Father will show up is when we are devout before him. And it's the same mentality that got the Pharisees in trouble. It's the same mentality that caused the Pharisees to never understand exactly what it was that Jesus was doing because they were so concerned with the, the stringentness, the discipline, and the, 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 the connection between God and heaven that comes in the devout things that they weren't able to connect with the feasting part of what it means to be with Jesus. If you look in Luke, we see this. If you like to turn, turn to Luke 5, and we see a moment when the Pharisees are very concerned about the way that Jesus is feasting. Luke 5, starting in verse 33, it says, And they said to him, being the Pharisees, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are referring to themselves in the third person. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Always be leery of people who are referring to themselves in the third person. But yours, your disciples, they eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. So this is very clearly not an abolition of fasting for the people of God. Jesus is very clear that he still thinks that fasting is part of the rhythm of the life of the believer. That he is not saying, now that my people have connected with me, we no longer need fasting and we will only live in feasting. He is very clearly saying there is both a time for fasting and a time for feasting. And apparently the time for feasting is when you are with 
Jesus, that there is an inviting him into that place when you say that we are feasting now with Jesus because we also know that he tells his disciples in another time and in another place, when you fast, do it this way which means he obviously intends for them to fast at some point if he's giving them instructions for how to do it. But it's also apparent that while they were walking around together, they were feasting more than they were fasting, that it was a time of feasting. And I believe that that is because while fasting is a declaration of our commitment to God, our feasting is a celebration of his commitment to us. It's a celebration of what he has done for us. When Jesus sat at the Last Supper with his disciples, he said, when you do this, what is this? This is not a wafer and a cup. That's what we've broken it down to, to make it logistically functional within the body of believers. He says, when you sit at a feast, at a table, remember me and make it a holy feast together. When you eat like this, Celebrate who I am. Celebrate what it is that I have done for you. Remember my broken body. Remember my risen body. Celebrate my commitment to my people when you come together with feasting. How do I know this? Let's look back. What got the Pharisees so worked up? If we jump back in Luke 5, just a couple verses, and we look to Luke 5, 27 through 32, it says, after this, they went out and they saw a tax collector. Tax collectors in the, old, uh, in the scripture are bad guys, bad dudes. They were like government-sanctioned gangsters, right? Jesus saw a tax collector whose name was Levi and sitting at the tax collector booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. I love Levi's response. Levi doesn't ask a bunch of questions. Levi doesn't have to take a statistical analysis of what this might mean for me to leave what I'm doing and start following Jesus. And can I afford to or can I not afford to? And what is this going to mean for the function of my life? He says, I heard Jesus say, follow me. And he leaves it and starts following Jesus immediately. And then look at what Levi's response is. He says, and Levi made him a a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors reclining at the table because Levi invited who he knew. He knew other tax collectors. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink? They are upset because they are feasting again instead of fasting with the tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners to repentance. Family, there is a time for fasting, but when we hear a response to Jesus, when we see sinners coming home, when we hear a declaration of Jesus drawing close and his commitment to his people, it is a time for celebration. It is a time for rejoicing. It is a time for feasting and for gathering together. When Levi said, I have been over here, I have been doing wrong, and I have been wronged, and I I have been on the outside of what it 
means to be part of the good people, of the collected people, of the community of God. But I heard Jesus call me. Levi says, the only way I know how to respond to this is by throwing a party. And I'm going to invite everybody I know to come so that they can hear me celebrate with them that there is feasting in the presence of God. Yes, this is a house where we fast. It is a house where we go before God and say, God, we are contending with you for our city. God, we are contending with you for healed bodies. God, we have heard you and we need to respond. We are people who know how to fast and to dedicate ourselves to God in fresh and new ways in times. But this is also a house of feasting because this is a place where sinners come home. This is a place where people come and encounter the presence of God and are welcomed into the house and into the family of God. This is a place where we say, welcome home. There is a feast prepared for you in the presence of God. I think about another feast that Jesus tells us about in scripture. There was a father whose son did him so wrong and so dishonorable. He took everything that was owed to him and he ran away and he squandered it and he lived in awful, terrible, humiliating ways and then his heart was broken and he returned home and what was the father's response when the son turned home? He said, welcome home to you. I have a feast that I've been preparing for you. I have a feast that's been waiting for you. If you have been walking away from Jesus, if you're a tax collector that's never known what it's like to be in his presence, if you're a prodigal who used to be part of the house and you ran away to far off places, I want you to hear so clearly today that there is a feast in this house for you, that there is a celebration waiting for you to come home, that we say, welcome home because there will be feasting in the house of God. Everyone who can, I want to ask you to stand. If you're at home and you're able, I'd like you to stand as well. Something powerful happens when we connect our bodies to what's happening in our spirit. And what we're getting ready to do right now is the most important thing that we do when we come together. There are people with us today, in this room, with us today online, who no doubt do not feel at home in the presence of God. I believe that all of us, I know that all of us were designed, were created to be in relationship with God. But we're born into a broken world and life happens and it gets messy and it gets us lost and it gets us confused and we get hurt and we hurt others and we feel separated from his presence. But I want you to hear today that all you have to do is respond like Levi did. When you hear the voice of Jesus saying, follow me, turn and follow him. And it takes just that moment and you are welcomed home into the presence of God. We're gonna pray this prayer together today as a family. We're gonna pray it together because when you are welcomed home into the presence, you are welcomed into a family of believers. You are no longer alone. You are no longer walking on your journey by yourself. His presence will never leave you and the family of God will gather around you. 
And in those moments after you pray this prayer, when you feel separated, when you feel lost, when you feel like you're isolated again, I want you to hear the sound of believers praying with you to remind you that you have been welcomed home into his presence. Amen, church? Amen. Say, Father God, thank you for welcoming me home. I know that I have not done everything right, but you have loved me still. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Holy Spirit, thank you for your power. Teach me to live like you. Thank you for welcoming me home. In Jesus' name, amen. We're believing that that word will bring strength and hope into your life. Absolutely. If God just spoke to you through this message and you're stirred right now to partner with us and to sow financially into the ministry that is Cornerstone Church, I want to encourage you to jump on over to our website, which is simply cornerstone.church and click the give button. Find the avenue that is most convenient for you today. That's right. We are going to continue spreading the message of the gospel and we look forward to continuing to connect together.